thanks we uh, have joined us here today and being part of the gathering I, I hope you I'm sure how you've heard me say this but I I can say it without reservation that being a part of the gathering is truly the highlight of my week even before I was a pastor as a family we planned everything around the weekly gathering uh, our as our kids grew we wanted to model the need to attend church or to attend the need to be a part of the church and we wanted to model that so we understood that that the world is actively vying for our families and your family's attention i mean it's actively vying i can promise you that the world is winning in many in many ways and you know that's the reason why many churches feel like they need to compete with what the world is selling many churches they, they try to jazz up the worship experience to attract people they they try to jazz up the youth program in, a, in order to compete with the world you know as as you know most of your if you have teenage kids you know that they are attracted to these social settings they they want to be a part of what you know in you know what is happening and and so therefore they they want to do what a what it you know they want to be a part of they want to do what other teens are doing and so churches will try to do what it takes then to attract the teens and you know I want to say this it it isn't necessarily that having a large youth group is necessarily wrong or bad but we have to recognize that these things can compete against the purpose of the church and we have to look at that in that way and so here at Grace Bible Church we've taken the time you know over the past um, couple of months we we took the time to go back through our philosophy of ministry and and here at grace bible church we want to be guided by our philosophy of ministry we we fully believe and we we live as in this way we exist to exalt god we exist to exposit the scripture we exist to equip the saints and we exist to evangelize the lost and you know it's funny we you, you can say a lot of things and we've said a lot of things about that but you might say it this way we don't exist to entertain the goats. We don't exist to entertain the goats. Now that may sound crass to you, and maybe it is. After all, after all, we were all goats at one time, were we not? Were we not? But I can tell you that when I was in that position, what I would have wanted at a, as, as, at a, out of a church was completely different than what I see today, what I understand church to be today. So if we follow our sinful flesh, it will take us away from a biblical philosophy of ministry. That's the point. We have to be relentless in evaluating our ministry, our church, according to God's Word. And, and many times that means we have to say no to things that will move us away from what is, a, what is a biblical philosophy of ministry? Truly, and this is what I'm getting at, what I want to get to, is that we have to ask ourselves, what is God's heart for ministry? What is, what is God's heart for ministry? Uh, friends, really, we have that answer, a clear answer in Scripture. Jesus gave us this answer many times during His earthly ministry. and In reality, the Ten Commandments reflected that answer. And Today we're going to be returning back to our study in Matthew, and, and we've called this series The King and His Glory. And over the, the past few weeks, we've studied John the Baptist's early ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah, as the forerunner of Jesus. And today I had planned to look at the, John's first clashes with 
uh, the, the, the Jewish elite class with the religious leaders in Matthew 7, or 3, 7 through 12. Now, these clashes began with John the Baptist as the forerunner of Messiah, the Messiah, but they will continue throughout Jesus' ministry as we continue, continue to stu- study Matthew's gospel. I mean, at the end of the day, what's happening here is really uh, the, the, the conflict that's happening here is, is how we better, best understand what's going on in Matthew's gospel. But as I studied more and re- as I wrote my sermon, the Lord has taken us in a little different direction this morning. Uh, this morning, I want us to... Here's, a, here's my goals for this morning. I want us to explore how John the Baptist fits into Israel's history. And we're going to do this as part of our review of the last two weeks. But I also want to give further context for these classes. So, uh, so we're going to look at, uh, a, con- the con- we're going to look at, a, at a clash between Jesus and the religious leaders in Matthew 22. So at the end, we're going to briefly look at the, the outline that I meant to get to before I return to it next time. So let me pray. And then we'll read the text this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning, we pray that you would bless this time. Lord, I pray that you would increase as I decrease, that that you would be exalted by the preaching of the word this morning. I pray that I would, Lord, be used that I would be used as a mouthpiece for what you would have your people here. May I say only your words. Father, may your word not return void this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Our text this morning is Matthew 3. We're returning back to Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruits is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
Now, you may recall that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we have seen that Matthew uses the ministry of the king's herald, John the Baptist, as a further proof that Jesus is the true king who deserves our worship. During these past few weeks, we've seen that John's ministry was marked by being a unique messenger. Now, John looked or carried out his ministry in the wilderness, which is about as far as you can get from Jerusalem and the temple. To say that John was completely different from the Jewish religious elite was like saying that water is wet. Look down at verse chapter 3, verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Not only did John preach in odd places, not only did he preach in the wilderness away from Jerusalem and the temple, he dressed in odd clothes. Now, I would argue, and I have told you this in the, in the past few weeks, that, that both of these things were God's judgment against the Jewish elites. Now, before we can finish this section, I need to give you some more background information. We will use then Matthew chapter 3, verse 3 as our launching point. Now, I want to I want to help you understand this quote from the book of Isaiah. Now, I haven't, we haven't considered this quote. We haven't considered why Matthew used it, but I want to take the time this morning. So by way of a tangent, I want to take the time to, to consider it. So with that, look at your text in Matthew 3, verse 3. For this is the one, this is Matthew speaking, this is the one referred to, John the Baptist, that is, by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, this quote is from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. Now, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, and as you do, I want to give you a brief overview of Israel's history up until that point. Now, understanding Here's what I want you to do. Here's the goal. I, understanding the purpose of this quote will help us better understand the purpose of John's ministry. It should even help us better understand, really, the nature of, of his ministry. Now, the book of Isaiah, and we've been reading through this on, on Sunday mornings, the book of Isaiah is the first book of the latter prophets. This section of Scripture includes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve, which are the so-called minor prophets. They're not minor, actually, and, and they're, they're not minor in the sense of being minor. They're just smaller books. But this particular book was written by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah ministered as a prophet to Judah uh, somewhere in the 739 to 686 B.C. He ministered during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. King Uzziah's reign had lasted for 52 years and was marked by prosperity. And during this time, Judah had developed into a very influential nation, both commercially and militarily. But this period was also a time of tragic spiritual decline. King Uzziah himself had sinned against the Lord in his attempt to assume the duties of a priest and burn incense on the article or on the altar. Now you can read about that in Second Kings fifteen verses three and four. The king's sin was emblematic of the nation's overall sinful condition. Judah's sin temporarily kept the nation from fulfilling Yahweh's ultimate plan to use them. But 
But, as we know, Yahweh's plans are never truly thwarted. Isaiah was written, Isaiah wrote this book to chronicle Judah's rebellion against Yahweh and to chronicle how they broke their covenant with him, triggering divine discipline and judgment. Yahweh disciplined Judah to remove their sin. As we read through Isaiah, we find that his discipline threshes out the evil ones and preserves his beloved remnant whom he plans to use in extending his dominion over all the nations. Understanding Isaiah then helps us understand how, how Yahweh will purge his people from unholiness or of unholiness and he will make them fit to participate in his rule. Now, we need to briefly consider, briefly consider Israel's history to understand the situation during, or to fully understand the situation during Isaiah's day. In Genesis chapter 12, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis, Yahweh sovereignly chose Israel's patriarch Abraham and promised to make him a great and mighty nation. He sovereignly protected Abraham and Sarah, his wife, and he gave them Isaac, the promised son. Yahweh's guiding hand led their family into Egypt where they ultimately became slaves, and Yahweh miraculously delivered them from slavery under the leadership of Moses. Now, despite Yahweh's faithfulness to deliver them, the people grumbled against Moses and the Lord. And as a result, they were made to wander for 40 years in the wilderness instead of being led directly into the promised land. Now, at the end of their time in the wilderness, on the precipice of their entry into the promised land, Moses stood before the second generation of them and showed them all that Yahweh had done in delivering them from Egypt and delivering them from their bondage. He explained Yahweh's expectation of the people when they entered into the land. Now, Moses reminded them of the Ten Commandments that had been given to them. We see that in the book of Exodus. They had been given to them at Sinai, which they agreed to obey. He, Moses, that is, exhorted the people to obey and to teach Yahweh's statutes to their children. Now listen to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9. Listen to this. Yahweh did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you are fewer, fewest of all peoples. But because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You shall know, therefore, that Yahweh, your God, He is God, the faithful God, and who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. This was part of the covenant that Israel loved to boast about. They were God's people. They were God's people. God loved them. God chose them. And they loved to boast about that. God had set them apart. But listen to Moses' words of warning in Deuteronomy 7, verses 10 through 11. But he repays those who hate him to their faces to make them perish. And he will not delay with him who hates him. And he will repay to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I'm commanding you today to do them. You see, Moses made it 
crystal clear to the people as they were getting ready to enter into the land that they were to obey Yahweh, and if they obeyed Yahweh, they would be blessed by Him. But their disobedience would bring curses. Now, unfortunately, by the time of Isaiah, Israel had thoroughly disobeyed. They were an obstinate people. And their disobedience left them unfit to fulfill Yahweh's purposes. The nation had partially obeyed Yahweh at times. They even prospered materially after settling in the land, especially under the reigns of of King David and, and his son Solomon. But they never truly, fully obeyed the Lord. And due to this failure of obedience, their their spiritual condition continued to degrade. Now, prior to Isaiah's ministry, the nation had been split into the northern and southern kingdoms. During Isaiah's ministry, the the spiritual condition of uh, the nation, uh, the spiritual condition of Israel, the northern kingdom, was shocking, but uh, the spiritual condition of Judah was shocking as well. Now, in Isaiah 1... Verses 1 through 5, Isaiah, who ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah again, gave the Lord shocking assessment of their disastrous condition. The Lord condemned many of Judah's, Judah's practices, including, uh, if you look at Isaiah 1, 14 and 15, they, they're empty and ritualistic worship. The, the Lord says, My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So God condemned them for their empty worship, and He also condemned them for their harsh and unloving treatment of the poor. If you look at Isaiah 3.15, He says, What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the afflicted, declares the Lord. Yahweh of hosts. He also, he also condemned them for their materialistic pride. He says in Isaiah 3, verse 18, In that day the Lord will remove the beauty of your anklets, your headbands, the crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, and I could go on and on, but he hates those things. Should make us think of our world, shouldn't it? After King Uzziah's death and Isaiah's commissioning that we see in Isaiah 6, just look at your text, and he, I, he sent Isaiah to the people, and just look at your text in Isaiah 6, 9. It says, he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not know. These were an utterly lost people. And Yahweh sent Isaiah to them. And he sent Isaiah to, to warn King Ahaz against joining any alliance with, alliances with Aram and north, the northern kingdom of Israel against Assyria. Isaiah 7, he exhorted Ahaz to trust in him for protection. He reminded uh, the people, the Lord that is, reminded the people of his great faithfulness. That they needed to trust in him and him alone, not in alliances. In Isaiah 9, he gives a, a glimpse of the future when he will restore them under the leadership of the Messiah. That is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the governments will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. 
And it says that there would be no end to the, his government or peace. Moses had even promised this restoration as the people stood ready to enter the promised land. And as Mo, Moses had, had prophesied, though, there would be great suffering due to the people's disobedience. But the Lord's promises stood. The, the, the Lord's promises stand. They will never fail. In Isaiah 11 and 12, we'll find that the Lord will preserve his remnant the remnant of those who praise him. In Isaiah 13, after dealing specifically, specifically with Judah, he begins a, a, a list of oracles against the surrounding nations. The nations were often, these nations were often enemies of God's people, and as, as enemies, he used them, God used them to judge his people and to purify them for his purposes. These oracles prove that God, that God was completely sovereign over all the affairs of man, even over all these nations. There was nothing, including the most powerful nations of the world, that was out of Yahweh's control. And Isaiah records these judgments from, from chapters 13 to 39. That now brings us to our text that Matthew quotes in Isaiah 40. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, Yahweh judged His people for their disobedience just as He had promised through Moses. That was the point. That, that God, had, God had judged them because of what they had done. And He used the surrounding nations to systematically bring them to their knees. And just a few years later, He would ultimately allow one of these nations to take them into captivity. And that's exactly how Isaiah 39 Ends. If you look at Isaiah 39, verses 5-7, through 7, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Behold, days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have treasured up to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says Yahweh. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, who will be taken away, they will become officials in the palace of Babylon. This is what the Lord said uh, said to Hezekiah, and, and it's exactly what was brought to pass. Because of their disobedience. But we have to remember, though, that from a human perspective, the situation may have seemed hopeless. But again, the Lord's promises stand forever. And that is, my friends, Isaiah 40 through 66. Now, in Isaiah 40 through 48, Isaiah, this is important for us to understand, he writes from the perspective that Judah was already in captivity in Babylon. He reminded them of the Lord's promise to deliver them from their captives and to captors and to restore them. Critically, in Isaiah 49-58, he spoke of a time when God will send his servant, Israel's Messiah, to redeem Israel. And in Isaiah 53, uh, the famous chapter of Isaiah 53, he showed that his, his servant would suffer and would be pierced for his for the, he would be pierced for their transgressions and crushed for their iniquities. And the rest of Isaiah shows that one day the suffering servant will rule his kingdom on earth with the people of Israel. And this would ultimately fulfill Yahweh's promise to Abraham to make him a great nation and to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's Genesis chapter 12. And this will also, this time will also fulfill Moses' promise of blessing that would happen when they fully obey Yahweh. Just listen to 
Moses' words in Deuteronomy 31 through 3. This is the promise. So it will be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you cause these things to return to your heart in all the nations where Yahweh, uh, your God, has banished you, and you return to Yahweh, your God, listen to and listen to His voice with all your heart and soul according to all that I am commanding you today, you and your sons, then Yahweh, your God, will return you from captivity and return His compassion on you, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh, your God, has scattered you. Now, with all that as our background, look at your Bibles in Isaiah 40. Remember, Isaiah is writing, writing this from uh, looking forward from the perspective of their, of their captivity. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all her sins. And here's what's going on. At some point in the future, God's punishment for their disobedience would end or will end. And His people's sin will be removed. The promise is, is that Israel will be restored. You might say it this way. The king will arrive and the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Israel and the nations will reign together with the king. But first, everything starting in Isaiah 40 will need to occur. So the question is, when will these things occur? When will Israel be restored? But here's, here's a better question, a better way to understand this. It's better to understand it as a process. So here's a better question. When will all the events of chapters 40 through 66 begin to occur? When will this restoration begin? Well, look at your text in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling. Prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Now that verse should sound familiar. Because that's the verse that Matthew uses in Matthew 3.3. 3. That's the verse, this is the verse that Matthew is quoting. Now, here's what you have to remember. When the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament, they expect their readers to understand all the context. They expect their readers, let me put it this way, they expect their readers to know their Bibles. That's why I've tried to give you the context of this quote. So here's what Matthew is doing. He's saying that John the Baptist is the voice of, the one, of one crying in the wilderness. He is the one that Isaiah prophesied of in Isaiah 40. And when he comes, when he comes, you can know that these things have begun. You can know everything that's happened, everything that is being said from Isaiah 40 through 66 this restoration that we've been talking about, you can know that it has started. In effect, the king's arrival was imminent because all the events prophesied by Isaiah had begun to occur. And this was triggered, triggered by John's arrival on the scene. Look at your Bibles in Isaiah 44 through 8. 
Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become plain, and the rugged terrain become a broad valley. Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loving kindness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but get this. And this is the most important part. But the word of our God stands forever. Ultimately, God is saying that everything that He has prophesied, everything that He tells us, He will bring it to pass as prophesied. Not a word of the prophecy will fail. And we don't have to explain it away. We don't have to explain uh, the world that we see and explain why it doesn't look like the world that God has said is going to be. Not a word of what He has said will pass away. Specifically, this refers to Isaiah's prophecies in Isaiah 40-66. through 66. He cannot be thwarted by anyone. And oh, by the way, Isaiah 53, turn there real quick. Isaiah 53. Starting, start Isaiah 52. Verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than any of the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had, what had not been told them they will see and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our report, Isaiah 53, verse 1, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he will grow up, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should, that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken, a man, his, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not... Now, esteem him. Now listen to this. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we were, we were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned away, turned to his own way, but Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Now I'll stop there. Here's the point. The ministry of the Lord Jesus was prophesied by Isaiah. It was part of what Isaiah said would happen. And so when 
when Isaiah, when, when John the Baptist showed up on the scene, the point is, is that everything, everything that God said would happen from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 66 is going to happen exactly as God has said, starting with sending His own Son to the cross. You see, He cannot be thwarted by anyone. Look back at Isaiah 40, verses 9-11. through 11. This is where we come in. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Raise up your voice powerfully, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Raise it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, Lord, Lord Yahweh will come with strength, His arm with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is, is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arms, in his arm, he will carry the lamb, gather the lambs and he will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing cues. God's kingdom is coming because God is sending his king. That is what John the Baptist was saying. And that nothing could thwart him. Uh, nothing could thwart him. Now this brings us back to the second mark. When John the Baptist came preaching a, an unrivaled message. He preached a simple yet profound message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He called for his listeners to repent. And this takes on a whole new significance when we think of it considering the prophecies of Isaiah 40 through 66. He was commanding Israel to turn from their sins and from their idols to serve a living and true God. And that was a shocking message to the Jews because they thought God was theirs by their national heritage. <laughs> What's funny is they would have agreed with this type of message if it were given to the Gentiles. Yet, John was preaching the message, this message to the Jews. In their mind, the kingdom was theirs, and the king would be one of them as well. So when John came declaring that the kingdom of heaven uh, was at hand, he was declaring that the, the king was on his way, uh, that, that they were not ready. And here's what's critical for us to recognize. can't make it into his kingdom by virtue of who you are. can't make it into his kingdom by virtue of being a, a descendant of Abraham. But that's great news for us, is it not? That is news that we should shout from the mountaintops. That's why, that's why that applies so much to us, that we should shout from the mountaintops, the Lord is coming. Listen to Isaiah 52.7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace, who proclaims good news of good things, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your Lord reigns. That ought to sound familiar, by the way. That's Romans 10. Paul quotes that in Romans 10, right? The events that were prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 40 through 66 through the end were underway. But here's the upshot. It would be repentance 
It would be bearing good fruit that would usher people into God's kingdom. In the words of John MacArthur, the way of the Lord is the way of repentance and of turning from sin to righteousness, of turning moral and spiritual paths that are crooked into ones that are straight, ones that are fit for the king. End quote. Sadly, the Jewish religious establishment, the Jewish elite, rejected John the Baptist's message of repentance. And they would reject their king. But here's the amazing part, for us anyway, for those of us who are not Jewish by heritage. Israel's rejection meant that the gospel would go to the nations. It meant that God would work through the church. I don't for a minute think that God is done with Israel. Not for a minute. Not for a second do I think God is done with Israel. But what's amazing is is that, that God is now taking the message of the gospel to the nations by the, through the church. So it all makes sense. We, when we consider John the third mark of John's ministry, that he had an unusual min, mission, and that he was baptizing these people in, in, in the Jordan River, he was, his mission was unusual because his, his baptism was different. Up to that point, Jews had only baptized proselytes, Gentile converts, into Judaism. Therefore, in their minds, baptism signified Gentile conversion uh, or Gentiles coming under the Abrahamic covenant. Said another way, the act of baptism was how a person joined God's people, uh, but as a proselyte. But now, uh, John's message of, uh, of, a re- of repentance says that you don't join by becoming a Jew. You, you join, you're part of God's people by repenting and turning to Him, by, by bearing good fruits that, that, that show that you've repented. John's baptism showed that they had truly repented, that they, that they, had re- they repented and had forsaken sin, that they had fully trusted in the Lord for salvation. That it showed that their works of righteousness was, that was in the law was as filthy rags before a holy and just God. They needed to be washed clean with a cleansing that only God could provide. They could only, this, is, this applied to the Jews as well as the Gentiles, they could only come into God's kingdom through repentance and faith. Just like the Gentiles. And that was unthinkable to the Jewish religious leaders. They would, that would have been unthinkable to most of the Jews. I hope that gives you some more understanding of what's going on with John's ministry. That John's ministry triggers all of these things to happen. Now, this is where I would normally jump in today's, today's outline, which I'll give to you here. Today, what, we was, what I was, wanted us to get to was that in Matthew 3, 7 through 12, Matthew puts up an uncompromising mirror toward the Jewish elite class. Now, this mirror reflected their need for, first, true repentance, for sec- second, for true restoration, and third, for a true Redeemer. Now, let me give you some, a little bit more background before we jump into that. A little bit further context. Um, we'll call this the sequel. You might think of this sermon as part prequel and part sequel. I gave you the prequel you know, with Isaiah 40. Now I'm going to give you the sequel. 
I want to give you a glimpse of the specific reason why John and Jesus conflicted with the religious elites. Understanding this conflict sets the stage for understanding the hostility that, the, that they had toward John and toward Jesus. The reason for their clash will help us fully recognize God's heart for ministry, even ministry here in this church. If taken seriously, it gives us an idea of where we may be falling short today. So turn in your Bibles now, so you were in Isaiah, turn now to Matthew 22. Now the text, starting in verse 34, the text here is part of a series of questions by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to test Jesus. They designed these questions to trap him by forcing him to say something that, it, that would cause him to look like a transgressor of the law. Now the first test, you'll see this in Matthew 22 verse 17, so we're going back up just a little bit. Matthew 22, verse 17, the first test was political in nature. It concerned the payment of the, of the poll tax, which the Jews despised. The Pharisees sent some of their disciples to test Jesus. Now, that was a big mistake uh, because, I mean, they didn't even, they didn't even go themselves. They, they sent some of their disciples. Now, look at your text in verse uh, 17. Notice they said, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to give a tax to Caesar or not? Now, notice in verse 18, Matthew twenty-two, eighteen, that Jesus, knowing their wickedness, said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Now, what you need to understand is that Jesus is always, in these situations, in these confrontations, he's always fully in control. He, he, he gives his answer then in, in verses 19 to 21. You can, you can read that for yourself. But I want you to notice verse 22. After hearing this, they marveled, leaving him, they marveled, and leaving him, they went away. Not only were they unable to trap him in, their answer, in his answer, they left utterly astonished at his wisdom. Now the second test is in verses 23 through 28. It is more, it's more theological in nature about the reality of the resurrection, which the Sadducees had denied. Now that's, this was a second test by the Sadducees. Now, Jesus answers them in 29-32. We're not going to pay attention to that right now, but I want to draw your attention to Matthew 22-33. The, in 22-33, the, the Sadducees failed miserably, but notice the crowds were astonished. So every time that they try to press him, every time they try to test him, he, he, they go away even more amazed and astonished. That's the point. Now, after this, this is where we're getting to, the verses, verse 34. After this, the Pharisees decided to try their best to test him again. Now, this time uh, in the area of theology. Now, look at your text in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a scholar of the law, asked him a question, testing him. Now, I think we can understand this as the Pharisees gathering secretly to plan their next question to trap Jesus. And in doing so, it's pretty clear, they fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy that, uh, that they were plotting together uh, against Yahweh and against His anointed, the Christ. That's Psalm 2-2. 
Peter points that out in or Luke points that out in Acts chapter four. It may, may have been during Peter's uh, sermon. But out of this clandestine meeting came a third and final question to test Jesus. Now you may notice that they they sent one of their heavy hitters this time. They didn't send their their disciples. They actually sent somebody that that they thought that was going to get get one over on Jesus. Now look at your text in Matthew twenty two thirty six says, Teacher, which is the greatest or the great commandment in the law? Now let me give you a little background. As time went on, the teachers of Israel determined that there were 613 separate letters in the Hebrew text of the Ten Commandments in the book of Numbers. And there were, therefore, they, they, they put together 613 separate laws in the Pentateuch or the Torah. The rabbis then divided those 613 laws into affirmative and negative groups. And they asserted that the 248 laws, uh, that there were 248 affirmative laws, one for every part of the human body. And there were 365 negative laws, or one for each day of the year. The laws then were divided again into heavy laws and light laws. The heavy ones were binding without question, and while the light ones were a little less binding. Sadly, as a result of their great pride, these religious leaders spent much of their time debating how these laws should be divided, each of them, and each, how each of them should be ranked. They debated the merits of each individual law versus the rest of the law. Yet, here's the problem. They completely missed the purpose of the law, the true heart of the law, even though it was clear all along. And they, they, here's the, when, and coming to Jesus in this way, they clearly expected Jesus would have his own way of dividing and ranking the law. They asked him then, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, Jesus answered this man by simply quoting Deuteronomy 6.5. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. That's, what, that's, the, that's how Jesus quoted or how Matthew wrote it down. Now, we're going to leave the specifics of this verse when we arrive there in the future, but I, I should tell you just on a side note that the Greek word for love is agape, uh, which, is, which, which is, is the one that's used to translate the Hebrew word for love. This, I, the verb, this verb for love has the idea of a purposeful, committed love for its object. In this case, the command is to be purposeful and fully committed to God who is the object of your love. The idea here is that your entire being uh, is to be committed to the Lord. Uh, we are, uh, said another way, we are to love the Lord with the entirety of ourselves. Sadly, sadly, the Jews were, would have been intimately acquainted with this command. This verse would have been the most familiar in Judaism. It was part of the Shema. You might think of it as something like Philippians 4.13 in in Christian circles today, Philippians 4.13, on steroids, that is. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We, we've, we all hear that everywhere. I mean, some football players put it on their, on their face. This was, that's what it was. Any, in in Jesus' day, every Jew worth his salt, salt recited the Shema twice a day. It was part of the verses they copied on small pieces of parchment 
and placed in phylacteries. The, the Jewish men wore these on their foreheads and left arms during prayer. So Jesus was declaring to them the great commandment, uh, which is the, the same commandment they recited every day. So they knew this. It's the same commandment they proudly bound to their foreheads and arms to display their outward affection to God. Yet inwardly they were completely bankrupt. They had no love for God. They only loved themselves. They had a veneer of loving God that was a mile wide and incredibly shallow. And Jesus condemned them for feigning love on the outside yet having no actual love for God. You see, they had set their hearts on outward religious ceremonies and actions. These things fed their self-righteousness and their self-satisfaction. They, they fed their hypocrisy. They were meticulous in their recitation of the Shema. They hung phylacteries on their foreheads to show their loyalty to God, yet it was all hollow and meaningless because it didn't come from their hearts. And they even sadder still. All these laws place great burdens on the people. They were the ones, the people were the ones who suffered under the weight of the whole system. And that becomes very clear as you read through the Gospels. And that was God, never God's intent for the law. So, in His infinite wisdom, Jesus doesn't stop here. You see, most people would not have questioned uh, these leaders' devotion for God. If you knew them, you might say they were the most religious men you know. You, they, they loved to be known for their knowledge and wisdom, but unfortunately it was a carnal knowledge and a worldly wisdom. Jesus' next word, words truly exposed their hypocrisy. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine and 40. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets prophets church it, it's easy to love ourselves we will always make sure we have plenty to eat and drink we will ensure that we have a comfortable place to live and that our own wounds are bound uh, yet loving others with a meaningful and purposeful love is very difficult especially when it costs us something like our livelihoods or even our lives and many times we don't even want to be inconvenienced by a brother or sister in, in need James captures this, this, this issue in James 2. Where, where the brother or sister comes and is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, but you don't give them what is necessary for their body. Uh, what a use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is a dead faith. Let me say it this way. Professed love for God without demonstrated love for your neighbor is demonic. James says that very same thing in James 2.19. You believe that God is one, yet you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Jesus' point is clear. We are to have the same genuine love for, God, for our neighbor as we do for God. I will take it even a step further. Our love for one another reveals the true nature of our love for God. The Apostle John understood that truth when he, when he says, the one who said is, says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness. 
1 John 2.9. So when John the Baptist arrived on the scene, he put an uncompromising, uncompromising mirror that would reveal their true hearts. That's what's going on here. Now we'll pick up there next time, but let me quickly run through let me quickly run through these this mirror that he puts up. John's mirror reflected their need for true repentance. That's Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8. These religious elite were curious about uh, what was going on. They traveled to see that this, that, but they, did, uh, they didn't do this to go be baptized by, by John. They wanted to see what was going on. Uh, it's interesting to note that they wouldn't go just a few miles down the road to find their Messiah, but they took this long journey to see John. Evidently, they saw him as a great threat. Just, just briefly, I want to look at John's exhortation to them. He says to them, look at your text in Matthew chapter 3. He says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We'll look at this more in depth next time that I preach, but for now I want you to consider what true, that true repentance will always bear fruit. It will always bear fruit. Galatians 5, Paul told the church at Galatia, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Beloved, if we're truly repentant, we will bear fruit. And that was the issue with these men, that they said that they loved God, they said that they were followers of God, but ultimately their heart was far from them, from him. Secondly, John's mirror reflected their need for true restoration. In chapter 3, verse 9, Matthew 3, 9, it says, Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that through these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. We've already shown that these leaders thought that they were in the kingdom by virtue of their heritage, yet John wanted them to know that was absolutely meaningless. God didn't need their heritage. He could make children from the stones in the riverbed. He, need, he, he didn't need them. And by the way, we shouldn't be arrogant. He doesn't need us either. And he says, look back at your text in 3.10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These men needed to be restored to a right relationship with their Creator. In their current state, they were not bearing the fruits. And any tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the flames to be destroyed. They needed that restoration. They needed God to restore them so that this restoration that they couldn't achieve on their own, they couldn't achieve by, by doing their good works. Therefore, John's mirror reflected their need for a true Redeemer. That's verses 11 and 12. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, what an incredible promise this true Redeemer would soon arrive. And when we return to Matthew, we'll get this, uh, the, the first glimpse at, at the Lord Jesus who has been prophesied from the very beginning, the Lord Jesus who is the Messiah, the Redeemer. Notice, the John, notice John's words, He is mightier than I. I am unfit to even remove His sandals. He is uh, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. 
Yet here in Matthew 3, John focuses on his judgment. Look at Matthew 3.12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. As we close this morning, many shy away from the reality of hell and judgment. And I can't tell you that it's my favorite subject. But clearly John the Baptist didn't shy away from it, so we shouldn't either. When he says that the wheat will be gathered in the barn, it is those who know him, those who are truly repentant, those who bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Those are the ones he will gather to himself. It is those who have trusted in him. They are the ones who are saved by grace through faith. They are the ones who recognize the free gift of salvation. Praise God if you know Him today, if you are in Him today. I am rejoicing with you, but it's the chaff that I'm most concerned with. I'm concerned for you as a, if you were an unbeliever, if you, if you claim to know Christ uh, if you claim to know Him, but you don't truly know Him. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought they knew God, yet their heart was far from Him. Don't think that just going to church makes you a son of God. Turn to Christ now. You may be here today and you, don't, you know you don't know Him. You know if there's a hell, you're on that path. I pray that you will turn to Christ. Don't wait another second. Friend, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that you will not wait another moment. He will by no means spare the guilty. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're here today and you don't know Him, don't wait another moment. I hope you'll recognize that, that as you stand today, you deserve death and eternal damnation for your sins. Just one sin is enough to put you in hell forever. Listen to the words of George Whitfield. If one evil thought... If one evil word, if one evil action deserves eternal damnation, how many hells, my friend, do every one of us deserve whose whole lives have been one continued rebellion against God? But God is offering the free and gracious gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just like John the Baptist preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. All the promises of God will come to pass. Don't believe as you look at this world. Don't believe that they won't. I pray that you will turn from your sins. I pray that you'll turn to Christ Jesus. Let me say it in a positive way. You were made to know Him. If hell doesn't scare you, if hell doesn't scare you, and it should, let me leave you with the words of J.I. Packer. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? 
to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives to know God? What is the best thing in life to know God? What in humans gives God the most pleasure? Knowledge of Himself. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning. Pray that we would have a little bit of better understanding of what's happening with John the Baptist's ministry here as a forerunner of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus. Father, the warning, the warning that he is gathering the wheat to himself and that he will throw the chaff into the unquenchable fire, I pray that we would take that warning seriously this morning. Father, I pray that we would understand that all the things that you have promised, all the things that you have promised will come to pass. Lord, that we would shout from the rooftops that you are the eternal God, that you are the sovereign God, that you are full of glory, Father, I pray that as you send us to preach your gospel, that we would do so with confidence, that we would do so knowing that you will bring all things to pass just as you have said. Lord, I pray as we look forward to seeing the Lord Jesus come on the scene in Matthew chapter 3, as we look forward to the Sermon on the Mount, to see the law of the King, Lord, I pray that we would, as your people, bring glory to you, that we would obey you, and Lord, that we would love you, and that we would love one another. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning in Christ's name. Amen.